Peace be with you. Before we get started, I wanted to just pray, praise God and thank people, individuals, and in our church. Um, it's a really cool week because uh, one thing uh, that took place is that um, uh, our brother Kyle Bush, Kyle Bush is back there. Kyle, raise your hand in the back. Go on, raise your hand in the back. Go on him. That guy, alongside of, with the help of our wonderful uh, Mercy Director, Megan Hurley, they, they had applied uh, to a federal grant uh, for our, just work with our food pantry, which was awarded. So we just got awarded 20000 this week for, yeah. So big, these people, the talent in this church. Uh, so anyway, thank you so much for doing that, man. It's huge uh, for us. And so, um, you know, I was just up here last week, and I was like, look at our budget. It's trending down. And then it's like a few days later, God's like, yeah, but I'll give you food. And that's how God is. Um, that's why we continue to do the work that we're doing. Alongside of that, then it's like almost in the... Almost like I think maybe the same day or something like that. Uh, Megan was at a conference for Care Portal. You know, Care Portal is our work um, with vulnerable families in the city of Middletown, and we've actually helped bring that to Butler County, which has been a great work, and it's been a, and a huge um, benefit, I think, to the city and to these vulnerable families, especially to children. And you know, it's we're trying to integrate it into everything that we're doing here, and so many of you. So I want to just say a big thanks to you community group leaders who help like, make sure that we communicate these needs and get these needs met for these kids in the city of Middletown that don't have a lot. Um, and to the success liaisons, with, with, I don't know if Lauren Denkoff's in here, and, but her as well, I want a big, big thanks to them. But she was down at the conference this week, and, and it's in tw- care portals in 29 states, and even up in Canada, you know, up there. And we we got awarded the most, I don't know, hustle award, <laughs> amazing award. We're the best. Um, so we, you guys, with this, we did. Out of all of that, all of that, we were like, have made. So can we just thank the, the community, everybody that helps? Um, it's so cool, man. Like, this is such good work. And I'm just thrilled. And, and if I left an important player out and all of that, I'm sorry, um, try to keep track of it, but man, it is such an awesome thing that you all are doing and that God is doing in you, and I couldn't be prouder. I mean, we may not be the flashiest or the coolest, but we actually do God's work of helping vulnerable people, and so I'm very, very thankful for that, um, and God is continuing to provide for us, and so, yeah, that's amazing, all right? So I just wanted to get that off my chest because I've just been so full of gratitude this week. I mean, really. I mean, sometimes my heart breaks as a pastor, and then sometimes my heart just beams. And this was just one of those weeks, man, where I just was like, gosh, I love this church so much. I'm so thankful for you and the work that you do. And it's very encouraging. Okay, so to shift gears into, our, into our, where we're at in our series, as the guys said earlier, we are ending our series. We've been in this journey of exploring kind of the summary exploration, if you will, because there's a lot there of the book of Exodus. Um, and so to finish off, though, actually, we'll, we're going to be jumping forward into the book of Numbers. And you're like, wait, I don't understand. And it's like, well, they're all kind of together. Like, you get to the end of Genesis, and it kind of starts this thing 
uh, with Joseph and heading into Egypt, and then it carries through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's, they're all kind of connected. And so we're actually going to go to Numbers. We're going there to Numbers because the story of God's ancient people being rescued out of Egypt isn't just about getting out of slavery. Um, what you find out, what you realize as you continue to read it, is it's actually about getting out of slavery and then being formed, shaped into a new people that can then enter in a land of, of where they can experience God and peace and rest. And ultimately, like that's really the goal. And the book of Numbers is actually where we find them at the, at the edge of this land. The edge, like the promised land, that the, the, the promise that stretches all the way back to Abraham. The, the, it, here they are. They're at the edge of it. And we're going to read about that, about to enter in. Now, before we get there, before we read it, um, and we will be in Numbers 13 if you want to get your Bible out or turn your Bible on and, and turn there. Here's just, I kind of want you to, if you can, use a little bit of imagina- imagination uh, this morning. So imagine you're 25, 35, or 45, or 55 65, 70, what, what, just imagine what you are right now, uh, apparently. Should have thought that one through. Um, so uh, take the age that you're at. Um, and uh, all you've known, though, your whole life is tyranny. You, all you've known is poverty. Um, all you've known is just harsh slavery, genocide even. Um, and you've just witnessed, though, God performing the most amazing miracles. You've, you, you, you've seen him do things with the natural environment that just, just wow your imagination. Um, you've seen death, like just crazy death. Um, you've seen waters that part and become, they just give you a trail of dry ground to walk on. You see a whole army chasing you, and then get crushed. You see all sorts of things, and every step of the way, you've been spared. And then after that, for, to further it, you get to the base of a mountain, and you've been camping out at this base of a mountain for roughly a year, and you've seen pillars of smoke and pillars of fire and this, is, this activates this idea, this, what you realize in all of this, is this is God's presence coming down and settling in amongst you. And he's, he's fulfilling all these promises to give you this land where you can settle in and make a living and experience all of this. And at the base of this mountain, you've been given a list of, you've been given all these principles, these ideas, um, rules, if you want to even call them that, um, ideas of how to live, to flourish, how to treat people, because you just kind of came out of a, a really dark place where people mistreat each other. And God is saying, look, you're going to be different. And you're going to treat people differently. Um, and so you've been learning all of that for roughly a year at the base of this mountain. And then at the end of that time period, you make this 10-day trek because it's, the time has come. So you roughly start to walk 10 days northward up to the edge of this land, this promised land. And Moses, your your leader, selects 12 leaders amongst your community, 12 leaders of your group. And he says, hey, I want you to go out, and I want you to enter into that land. I want you to spy it out, and I want you to see, and this is the language that that, that the text uses, I want you to see if it's good or is it bad. Is there, is, the, is there fruit there? 
And I'm actually just, if there is, I want you to take it. I want you to take some samples of it. It's, it's, it's really interesting, actually. The language just harkens all the way back to Genesis 3. It's almost identical. But in this, this time around, we're actually meant to take the fruit. And so it's fascinating. It's rehashing that same scene. You're going into a garden land, and I want you to see if it's good or if it's bad. So he tells these spies to do this, and the leaders come back, and they're carrying all of this ridiculous fruit. A cluster of grapes so big that it's got to be carried on a pole between two people, which I think is actually the symbol currently in Israel for the Ministry of Tourism. It's two people with a pole with a big cluster of grapes between them. Nerd information for you. But anyways, so uh, anyway, they come back, and then, and that's not all they see, though. They don't just see pomegranates, figs, and grapes. They see giants in the land. It's cliche, but that's actually what they saw. They see giants in the land, these huge people living there. I'm like, oh, I can, I can resonate with that. I'm used to seeing big people. Um, and so they see these terrifyingly huge people, and, and, and then now the time has come, they're, they're back, and they're going to report what they've seen. These 12 spies are going to report what they've seen, and you're just sitting there. Remember, you, you've experienced all of this over your lifetime. And now the time has come. And so you're sitting there with bated breath. You're anticipating this conversation, this conversation that you've literally been waiting your whole life for. And this is what you witness. This is what you hear. And that's what we're going to read. So that's what I want you to try to imagine as we read it. And we're going to start in Numbers 13, and we're starting at verse 25. And you can just stay in your seat, because I'm going to read for a bit, and I'm going to skip around. But I'm essentially going to start in uh, chapter 13, verse 25, and read all the way through 14, verse 10, and then I'll pick up in verse 20. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, those 12 spies. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation. They showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, but we came to the land to which he sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Melekites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to to the report of of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why 
is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to just go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, well, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared to the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Now we're going to jump down to verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I'll bring into the land into which we went. And the descendants, his descendants, shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. This is the word of the Lord. What did you notice in that scene? I skipped a portion where Moses intercedes, but, and I would encourage you to read the whole bit, chapter 13, chapter 12, 13, and 14, really. It's great, great, great uh, chapters to read. But what did you notice? What struck you in it? What was fascinating to you? One interesting phenomenon that jumps out, I think, if right from the get-go, is how um, incredibly powerful and contagious fear is. Anxiety. Like, it's like a contagion, you know? It's like we fear COVID, like how you know, infectious COVID is. And it's like fear and anxiety is very much similar to that. We catch it very easily. And it gets inside of us. It's amazing how that works. You know, fears are worthy of being listened to. Your fears that you have are worthy to be listened to. You should listen to them and and figure out what's going on. It's always important to listen to your insides. Uh, Fears are uh, always truthful indicators of what you feel. However, um, fears are not always truthful indicators of reality. They're not always truthful indicators of who God is and what he's like. I, th- I think of fears um, and feelings like lights on your dashboard of your car. They tell you a lot about what's going on underneath. You know, something's wrong underneath the hood. We should address this. But you don't look to them to tell you what your personality's like or what your destiny is. So we should listen to fears, but we shouldn't let them rule our lives. And what's fascinating in this scene is that fear is incredibly contagious. It stirs up, it stirs up inside of just 10 people. 10 people. And 10 people ruin the whole party. Because 
The fear in 10 infects a whole mob to the point that they're murderous. They become murderous. Become an angry mob that wants to stone people. It's ridiculous. And then they also want to turn their backs on God. Uh, The very first verse of chapter 14 says, then the whole congregation, some of your translations might say even uh, community, the whole congregation raised a loud cry. Everybody starts weeping. Crying, I want to say, isn't ultimately the problem. Like, I don't want us ever, ever, ever to think that crying is a sin or somehow if you cry, you're a failure. Not at all. Crying isn't ultimately the problem. The, crying is that the, the problem is that the crying leads to false assumptions. And when you get into the business of false assumptions of other people or God, you're in troubled territory. You start to assume things, uh-oh, be careful. That's why you should always interrogate what's underneath the tears and then figure out, what am I assuming? What am I assuming about God? What am I assuming about him? What am I assuming about her? And should I, maybe it's worthwhile for me to interrogate that a bit. And you see it right here in verse um, 3. They say this, it's rhetorical. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? You just assume what God wants to do. That, of course, breaks God's heart. Because if you know the whole story and you've been here and you've been following along, you know that. You, you know how he feels about this. This isn't the first time that we've seen something like this. Throughout this whole ancient story, there is this pattern of rebellion and intercession. Rebellion and intercession. And that happens here again. Moses speaks up on their behalf. We didn't read it, and you, I would encourage you to read it. Moses immediately after this, when God's like, are you, this is my paraphrase of God, but you know, when they do this, they start crying aloud going, he's just going to kill us. And God's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And then Moses does what he's been doing throughout. He intercedes. And what's interesting is Moses doesn't intercede on the basis of their behavior or their merit, does he? No, no, no. Moses intercedes on the basis of God's character. It's really interesting. Uh, verse 19 um, of, of chapter 14, this he says, Please pardon the iniquity of this people. And listen to what he says. According to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Like, this is who you are. This is your character. Don't change your character. And God's like, okay, I won't. It's fascinating. Just before that, we didn't read it, but just before that, essentially Moses says this. Look, God, if you kill these people off, I I get it. You're angry. You're upset. You have every right to be upset. I mean, they just are ridiculously rebellious. But if you kill them off, Egypt, they're going to hear about it. And when they hear about it, they're going to be like, "Mm mm-hmm, he's not that powerful. He can't do what he says he's going to do. And you don't want that to happen, God. And I love it. It's just like this playful thing where Moses is like, look, here's who you are. Your reputation matters. And I know you want a reputation that's true and good and beautiful, and it's at risk with all these people. Don't spoil your reputation because of this pity party. Don't do it, God. And God's like, you're starting to get it. Which teaches us something about praying and calling upon God's character, not ours. I know this is who I am, God, but this is who you are. So this is what Moses does. He calls upon God's character, and so God essentially is like, look, okay, I'll pardon them. I will let them live. But, and this is very instructive, God says, and this is sad, it's hard, but he says, I'll just give them what they're asking for. 
I'll let them turn back. And you know, this, this tells you something about a terrifying reality of God. And I say this just very humbly and, 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 and soberly. Sometimes one of the scary things about God is sometimes God just gives you what you actually want. And if you've noticed in the Bible, the Bible has a way of historically saying, uh, we're not so good at knowing what we, sh- what, like what we should get, what's good. So we make very bad judges of that. And in this case, God's like, I'll give it to you. You can have it. You can turn back. Go back and wonder. And they, of course, will eventually all die off. Everybody except who? Who? <laughs> who are the people? Well, first off, the children. Do you see that? And they're crying. They're like, how dare you, God? Our, our little old wives and our children, they're going to be prey. And God's like, nah, your children will live. They'll inherit it because of your poor decisions. So the children, the ones they were so worried about, <laughs> are the ones that are going to inherit the land. And that's not all. There's two others. These two spies, these standout spies, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua will have a different outcome. Nonetheless, the scene is tragic. And there's no question about that. Uh, it, it really is a sad, sad scene. And it really sets a trajectory, a sad trajectory, uh, that you'll see that repeat throughout the book of Numbers, which is distrust and rebellion over and over and over again. People are shown things, they're given provision, and then they just slip into distrust and they rebel over and again. And so to put a bow on that, I just want to say again, yes, it is the fact that anxiety and fear can be so incredibly contagious is worth meditating upon. What, What surrounds you currently, you know, because you're not impervious, like it gets inside of you. What are you listening to on a frequent basis? This is why people that just sit in front of a fearful news screen carry with them a certain level of constant anxiety. But for today, (laughs) that's not my sermon. Today, (laughs) what I really want to concentrate on and I want you to reflect on is this contrast of Caleb and Joshua against the other ten. What about them is so fascinating? Verse 24, chapter 14, this is what God says of Caleb, and I just love it. I just want to read it again. But he says that he has a different spirit about him. Don't you want a different spirit? Don't you want God to say that about you? He's just different than the rest of them. I love them all, but he's different. I love them all, but she's, I love the NIV, instead of saying fully, says that he follows God, he's wholehearted. I love that about Caleb. He's all in, wholehearted. One of my favorite words that's used in this whole section. And we didn't read it, but down further, we read this um, in chapter 14, verse 30 and 31. Not one shall come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell, except Caleb, Joshua, and your little ones. 
And then God even says, who you said, I can almost picture God lovingly waving his finger, like, because you said that they would be prey. No, they're going to get it. And sure enough, by the way, you eventually get to the book of Deuteronomy, and you see this play out. So for those of you that have never really, and that's okay if you haven't, but if you've never really figured out, okay, what's going on from Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, like these books of the Bible, this is what it is. This is the story that you have. Deuteronomy, you get this next generation. They're not kids anymore. Now they're adults, and they're going to enter in. And, and, and so just so you know, um, that once you get there, the whole generation has died, died out, um, and, and they've been out in the wilderness for 40 years, and everybody except for Caleb and Joshua and the second generation will enter in. Um, and so, but that's jumping ahead for today. All I want to do is just drill down on this standout moment, this moment that's a mix of fear, courage, rebellion, and loss. So let's think about this for a bit. Um, what made Caleb and Joshua different? What made them different than the other people and the other ten? What was the different spirit about them? Uh, other translations use the word attitude. Well, what gave them such a different attitude in a moment of testing and trial? You might be thinking courage, right? That's right. It's a good, that's the right answer. Congratulations, courage. Yes, they had courage. And that's certainly the direct lesson. Like, following God requires courage. Like, it's not always easy. You need courage. And these guys had it in spades, man. I mean, standing up to their friends and colleagues, have you done that lately? It takes courage, especially when you're under an immense amount of pressure. Not being afraid of the giants in the land, even though the odds are stacked against you, that's courage of the highest order. They had courage. All of that's true. But saying, hey, brother, hey, sister, be courageous like Caleb and Joshua. Let's pray. Like, I don't know if you're going to go out different, you know? Like, it's one thing to say, hey, let's be courageous. And there's another thing, there's a whole other reality, and I think it's far more helpful for us to reflect on what created courage in them. What will create a, a spirit that is different in you? Is it just like you need to have more quiet times? Well, that helps. Like what about them? What creates, what cultivates courage in you? What will give you a different spirit? Stanford, uh, Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck, she's got some fascinating things, I, I think, on this topic. Um, Oh, she doesn't necessarily call it courage. In her book, 2000, in 2006, uh, Mindset, many of you probably read it. It's a classic, famous book. Um, it, it, for her, she was obsessed. Or she's a researcher. She was obsessed with the idea of, like, who thrives under challenge and who doesn't. Um, and it all really kind of got kicked off for her when she started studying 10-year-olds. She was bringing in 10-year-olds to work on various puzzles. And these puzzles would get more difficult, um, at various times. And so when the, when the puzzles got difficult, some children thrived. They really came alive. It was almost as if the challenge was relished and, and they would push through it. Uh, they would keep pushing even, even at sometimes when essentially it was impossible. And they were in, it was inevitable for them to fail. But they didn't seem to care. They would just keep going. 
And then, of course, some, some children, though, would, would, would experience a, a difficult puzzle, and they would just shrivel up. I mean, it would just melt them down. They would grow increasingly anxious and increasingly more discouraged. And so, like any good researching psychologist, she wanted to know why. Like, what, what, what's the difference? What's the different spirit? Well, why, why, do, why, do, why do both of them come to the table, experience a hard challenge, and some perk up and dig in, and some just become completely demoralized? What's operating underneath? Her summary conclusion in the book, essentially she says it comes down to two mindsets. One is a fixed mindset, and the other is a growth mindset. Um, and so a fixed mindset is this idea essentially that you, you, you naturally, subconsciously, you've, you're operating out of this belief system that, that your personality, your abilities, your skills, they're carved in stone. What you see is what you get. The hands you're dealt is the way it's going to be. And it, to the point that even your outcomes are fixed. Um, and so your whole future, in, in a sense. And therefore, these are people who subconsciously develop this perspective that risk and challenges are things that might potentially reveal to yourself and to other people you're inadequate. And that really is hard for them. And so therefore, as a consequence of that, they tend to avoid challenges and risks because they don't want to be revealed as inadequate, because if, the, if their inadequacies are beginning to be revealed in them, then that might be reveal that they're just flat out inadequate as a person. And it threatens their whole identity. They might not be up to the task. And therefore, it just confirms in their psyche that they're just a failure, and failure is all they're ever going to get. And so they avoid challenges at all costs, and when they can't avoid them, and they fail, they incessantly grumble and complain, and they despair inwardly. A growth mindset, though, on the other hand, is just the opposite. And I'll just read her stuff on it. She says this. This is what she says. A growth mindset is based on the belief that your basic qualities are things that you can cultivate through your efforts, your strategies, and help from others. Although people may differ in every which way in their initial talents and aptitudes, interests, and temperaments, everyone can change and grow through application and experience. Do people with this mindset believe that anyone can be anything, that anyone with proper motivation or education can become Einstein or Beethoven? No. But they believe that a person's true potential is unknown and unknowable, and that it's impossible to foresee what can be accomplished with years of passion, toil, and training. And I love this, but she, and this is so, so good. She goes on to clarify that it's not that these kinds of, these kinds of people don't get sad or angry or frustrated or even like they, or it's not that they don't ever feel like they're stuck in a hard situation. No, no, no. But the difference about them is, and this is so important, so please hear this. They don't prefer comfort over change. You got that? Like when it comes down to it, they would rather have change happen in their life than sit in comfort and lick their wounds. That's the difference in them. There's just something operating underneath. And therefore, you know, if they encounter something and it means that they're going to look weak, they're the kind of people that say, well, who cares? Can I grow? 
Will I change? Could I be different? What matters to them is growth. What matters is learning. What matters is changing over time. I love that about her ideas and what she came to realize. And if you want to know how to raise kids up in these two different mindsets, come see me after the service because I'm astounded by some of the things that she recommends. But now I I, I know that I'm fully aware that I'm gleaning from a non-Christian science book on learning and personal development. But here's the thing. If her researched, heavily researched conclusions are accurate, and I think that they are, then it perfectly aligns and it confirms even, I think, what we see over and again and what we see fueling courage in this story in Caleb and Joshua and really every story of courage in the Bible. And that's essentially this. Listen to me, please. Courage in the face of challenge isn't something that's fixed from birth. Like some have it and some don't. Courage is hard fought for. It's practiced. It takes time. It's forged through training, experience. Hardship either hardens and demoralizes you or it teaches you and it grows you. Those are the options. It all depends on your mindset. I wholeheartedly think Caleb and Joshua looked at all that they had been through up to that point in their lives as preparation, as training, as practice. I don't think that they just naturally woke up one day and they were like, yeah, I'm a courageous person. No, they had a tendency, I think, to look at their life and their experiences and say, I've been prepared for this moment. Side note, and this is totally conjecture. I'm just throwing this out there. But you know who Caleb's grandfather was or ancestor was? Can't remember the, how many lines. Judah. Anybody remember Judah? Back from the book of Genesis. Judah was one of the brothers that was like, uh, we should sell Joseph off to these people. Not a good idea. Not a good idea at all. You know what else Judah did? He um, slept with what he thought was a prostitute. And it turns out it was his daughter-in-law. Yeah, if you're like, what? That's in the Bible? Yeah, it's a weird, perverted story. And he gets caught. And he owns up. And he's like, she's more righteous than me. And he's humiliated by the whole endeavor. And then eventually... Things get really bad. Joseph's really big and famous. He's kind of a big deal now in Egypt. And he ends up going there and encounters him. And Joseph does this whole setup thing uh, with their little, little brother, Benjamin. And you know who at this point in life, you know who says, you know, take me instead of Benjamin. You know who it was? Judah. It's conjecture, but I believe that over the course of his lifetime, through failure, Judah learned some things. And he became different. And I think that that was passed down to Caleb. And I think Caleb was raised up. It's a guess. So don't quote me on it. I'm just saying. I think that he was probably raised up in a family that said, hey, how you start out is not how you can end up. But you got to want to be different. you got to want to be, you got to want to change. You need to become someone who learns some things about your mistakes and actually leans into them, starts to ask questions. And so I think that this is what happens. And I think that's what happened to Caleb. I think it happens to Joshua, all of it. And so they have courage in this moment. They see it not as a fluke. 
They see it all as training, and they were ready to go into the land with God on their side. And think about it, man. Think about this. God didn't rescue Israel from Egypt overnight. We just spent weeks on this, and we summarized it. But God didn't just, like, he put them through hard things, through challenges. They didn't just come out of Egypt in a day, put one foot on the other side of the Red Sea, and it was in the promised land. That's not what happened. And if you were reading it carefully, had you been reading it, if I was reading it carefully, I, I think at some point, and you really meditated upon it, you would probably ask, wait, God, why did you go through all of this? Why string it all out such a long manner? I mean, why not just in a day, you're out of there, here you are, garden. You're welcome. Why does he drag them through all of this? Well, it's drawn out for a reason. God's training them. It's a time of testing. It was meant to shape them. It was meant to forge them and give them a kind of trust that's unshakable. They were meant to learn to trust his character over their circumstances, which is, in essence, what it is to be a Christian. You trust in God's character over your circumstances. You're learning that, little by little, over time. And that's precisely what the vast majority, the mob, rejected. They rejected the idea that his character could be better and more steadfast and reliable than my circumstances. And you can see it plainly in God's lament. That, like, that's what God's upset about. Verse 21 through 24, this is God speaking. But truly as I live and as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times that have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it but Caleb. He'll get to. Like, God is upset because it's like, you saw the signs. You you witnessed the training. You've been in the classroom with me. I've shown you things. They had seen the glory, the signs, the provision against all odds. They had experienced to draw off of, but they ignored it. And so as we we wrap up this Exodus story, the the big lesson that I, I hope we can internalize is that Israel's exodus isn't just history, it's paradigm, right? It, it, it's not just a thing that happened, it happens. It's happening to you. It's happening to me. It's, 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 it's happening today. It will happen tomorrow and next week. It's not just a historical moment. It's a pattern of what the journey, if you consider yourself at all spiritual, that's the pattern. This is it. It, 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 it. Their journey, Israel's journey, was, you know, for anyone that encounters God, this is what it is. Their journey was rescue, wilderness, invitation. That's your life. That's your whole life. That's tomorrow even. Thinking through it in that way. And sadly for them, the invitation to trust God, who, who loves us, but brings us up against giants of challenge, was rejected, at least by the majority. And the same is true for me. The, the same is true for you. The, you know, the longer I'm a Christian, the, the more I realize that this is a very difficult pattern for us to embrace. It's, it's difficult for me to embrace. I struggle with this. So many people, rightfully, at some point, hopefully, and if you haven't yet, please hear this. 
most people, at some point, they become Christian. They, they internalize this message, this understanding that, wait a second, I'm messed up inside. I have failed tremendously. But God, in his love, has sent his son down into this earth to come and rescue me from the sin and failure that I've had in my life and ultimately to rescue me from death. And then if I have this sacred confession, this, this genuine confession that Jesus is Lord, he takes me in and he's like, I forgive you and I love you and your future is bright. And we rightfully take that in. And we should, that's good, that's gospel. But the thing about it is, um, we seem to almost deliberately ignore the pattern that in God's care and in God's love, he will lead us right out into the wilderness. Every time. He will say, I love you and I forgive you. Come on, let's go to the desert. Every time. And we almost deliberately ignore that part of the Bible. I mean, we read it. We read it, but like we just like for some reason we struggle to internalize that this is a pattern that you cannot reject. And that is why we all, at some point, if we, if we have some level of sobriety in us in our spiritual journey, we'll say, this, just, this kind of feels like a wilderness. This moment feels like a desert place. Where are you, God? And it's like God is like, I, and in many ways I think God is looking at us going, what do you, I'm right here. Where did you think we were headed? And this is a difficult reality to, to, to internalize, I understand. It's in the desert places that we learn things we couldn't learn otherwise. You don't learn in your strength and in your comforts. You learn in your weakness. That's, that's what the Bible's trying to tell you. It's a really difficult thing to learn. You say, I want God's power in my life. I want to see it. And God is saying in the Bible, what it literally says in the Bible is, you'll know my power when you get weak. And we just are like, different verse. You know? I'm just... Go to Jeremiah 29. (laughs) My Bible people know what that means. Like, we just don't want to read that part of the Bible, but that's the reality, and and it it is absolutely a pattern of his love, not of his abandonment. If, if you want to be different, you want to stay the same? Yeah, It's nothing but just terrible news. But if you want to be different, this is the way it happens. You know, the New Testament picks up on this paradigm, and it depicts the entire earth, our entire earthly lives on this side of heaven as wilderness training. It's why the Apostle Peter refers to our entire life as sojourners and exiles, awaiting our final resting place with Jesus. Like, that's the whole arc of your life. And the author of Hebrews articulates our whole life um, as a practice of this. If you just look at... Many of you probably know it, but Hebrews 3 and 4 pick up on this. Let me read just a little bit of it in and, 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 and Hebrews 3. I mean, this is the language of this story right here, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, today, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Those guys back then, remember them? On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And said, they always go astray in their heart. They know my ways. They've not known my ways. And I swore my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. 
Like we get together in groups and we grumble, don't we? And the Bible is like saying, look, man, life sucks sometimes. It's really hard. So when you get together, encourage each other and say, what's going on inside of you? And how can I encourage you? For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, while you walk through the wilderness places, while you're in the desert, hang on. That's the work we do. Courage under trial isn't just the paradigm of your whole life. It's the daily practice in practical form. Man, I cannot tell you how many times that I begin my days. This is real. This is real of my own life. I can't tell you how many times I begin my day bathed in prayer. Now, hang on. This isn't a bragging story. This is a story of my real humanity. I can't tell you how many days at 5.36 a.m.-ish, I am just bathing in prayer, and I am just, like, it's not always this good, but there are moments, in all honesty, that it is like I am just dialed in, man. And it's just like I'm able to, my attention is good, I'm able to focus, and I just pour my heart out, and I just am like, God, just I want to see your power. I just want to see it. Nothing is, everything else is just kind of okay, good sometimes, but your power is just the most exciting. I want to see it. Let me see it. And something around me today. Please, your kingdom, glimpses of it, just... Uh, and, and man, I get up after a time of prayer like that, and I am like bulletproof, right? I, I mean, I just walk out like, oh, I feel good about myself, you know? And before lunch, before lunch, I get some email that just rocks me into anger. Before lunch, I am hit with some kind of confrontation. Before lunch, I get some kind of physical ailment. This ain't power. This is wilderness. This is awful. And how dare you? And I begin to fume inside. I'm like, I put the armor of God on this morning. You know what I mean? The sandals, the breastplate. And I am wounded. And it's not even lunch. This was real. This really happens to me. And I am literally brought to the edge of myself. And I feel myself drifting towards the solidarity, not with Caleb and Joshua, but with the ten. God, why did you bring me to my knees this morning in beautiful prayer to just demoralize me by lunch? I had the sweetest morning with you, and this is how you love me. You thrust a giant in my face that doesn't just challenge me, but it's very often specifically a challenge that awakens very specific demons that I'm wrestling with. There's like a sick, twisted irony to the whole thing. Like it it conjures up like it's some kind of confrontation that just makes me face my own insecurities or my own oversensitivity or it's some kind of physical setback. And I'm like, man, I've been exercising, you know? And I'm just like, it's just right in the thing and it just, just starts to needle at it and poke at it. And it makes me face it or some, some deli- struggle in my leadership. And I'm like, man, I've been trying to be a better leader. 
Like, it, it, like it's almost surgical how God does that sometimes. And little by little, though, I'm learning. I mean, it is little. <laughs> but I am learning not to sulk and not to harden, but to say, all right, yes. Okay, I get it. You are with me. And this is not a sign of your displeasure or your abandonment, but is precisely a sign of your love. It is precisely a sign that you are working on me to change. If the Son of God himself, Jesus, was baptized and then immediately taken into the desert to be tested, why do you think you'll be any different? You won't be. So which leads me to ask this, what is the invitation, right? For me, I end up asking it, what's the invitation, Lord? Is it a phone call? Is it a hard phone call? Is it, is it just simply asking more questions of this person? Is it, is it simply uh, a confession, an apology? Is it admitting that I, is it mean just showing up and admitting that I just don't know what to do right now? It, what's the invitation you have for me here, Lord? And when I'm at my best, that's the second half of my day after lunch. Your life will be no different. The Lord loves you more than you can possibly imagine. This is true. And if you are letting him love you, friends, you're not going to be offered immediate safe passage. You're offered a life of training and testing. That is what you're being offered. But for the flip side of this, you need to see that Your potential, your outcome is unimaginable. The only fixed thing about all of this is that your outcome, your end, will be safe and secure in the love of Jesus. So what challenges do you face as we come to the table this morning? What are you facing? Ultimately, it's a question of attention, the attention and the receptiveness receptiveness of your own heart. So, like, are, are you open to risk? And I don't know what that risk is. I can't tell you. The Holy Spirit has to get working inside of your own gut, and you've got something whispering to you, I'm sure, at some point. But what, what's the risk in front of you? Is it a phone call? For some of you, it's just a prayer. For some of you, it's the first prayer. Like, it's, I, I haven't prayed in 10 years, and I need to start praying today. I don't know what it is. Some of you, it's a confession. It's like, man, I just need to say it. I need to say it out loud to my spouse, or I need to say it out loud to my friends. It's just been nagging at me. Some of you, it's maybe you're, you're just being invited into a place where it's like it's time to be kind, it's time to be soft, and it's time to forgive someone that you're just hanging on to bitterness with. Someone that you've been closed off to. So where, I mean, where do you hear the voice? That's the writer of Hebrews. If you hear, if you hear the voice, don't harden to it. Don't harden. Please. The vast majority, the mob, turns off the voice and walks away. The vast majority does. Because, and they turn back to money. They turn back to career. They turn back to an unhealthy romantic relationship. They turn back to self-pity. But the very few people, very few people say, yeah, I'm tired of that. It ain't working for me anymore. So where do you hear it? Don't shrink away. Don't turn away. You may, if you turn away, you may get immediate comfort. But in the long run, you will be no different.
you will not change. So, as we come to communion, remember what we're doing, that this bread represents Christ's body broken for us. The cup of wine represents Christ's blood shed for us. He did this on the cross. He did this work for us in love. This bread represents Jesus' body broken so that when you feel broken, and you will feel broken, you can remember that your brokenness is not in vain. And the cup of wine, the cup representing his blood poured out, just should remind you as you come and take part in that, it reminds you that when you feel poured out, man, when you feel like you are being emptied out, it is not in vain. And so I hope you can remember that. I hope you can meet with the Lord in prayer this morning. If you have any questions after the service, you're invited to come and ask. There's a station here and there's a station there. If Jesus is Lord to you, you're invited to come forward and take a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever one your conscience permits. Let us pray together. Fathers, we reflect on the fact that we all have to enter into a wilderness. We all have to wait for you, ultimately. We all have to work out our salvation. We remember that, Lord, there is rest being offered to us, but there's also a yoke of learning, a yoke of testing, where we come across trials. And, Father, we want to believe in you, we want to hold on to you, but we're asking that you help us in our unbelief. And that's the reality of the Christian life. We believe, but we also need help in our unbelief at times because it slips in. slips in in my life and it slips in in many others. And so help us, strengthen us. As we leave this morning, may we leave in peace because of your work and because of your love for us. God, we give you thanks for this bread and for this cup and what it represents. And may we be reminded that you have been sacrificed, you have bled, you have completely poured yourself out on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.